Thanks, Pete. Hey, morning. How are you guys and gals? Great to see all of you. Good to be with you. Fresh in from the colonies or what have you. It's great to see you. We're not bitter at you, just in case you're wondering. I know you're all bitter at us, but get over it. It's great to see all of you. Really happy to be here. I love your country. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, which is land of rain and cold and overcast and the, the four, day, four hours of light in the winter. Yeah, so I feel right at home. And uh, when I walked in, I just saw a wall of coats. I said, yes, this is, this is my, my people are here. So it's great. It's great to be with all of you. My wife, Tammy, is here, and uh, we're going to hang out next week. We actually honeymooned in the UK, so we're going to go back to where we stayed on our honeymoon next week, which should be, oh, it's so sweet. So that, uh, that should be great. So it's a great chance to get over here. I love what the Spirit is stirring in the church. I love the church in the UK. And we are learning from you so much how to walk in that marriage of mind and heart of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, not one or the other, but really to chase after both, to chase after Jesus, who was about both. He was shaped by the scriptures and obviously filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's great to be with you. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Pete was in Matthew last night, which was serendipity at work or the spirit at work, and uh, because that's what's stirring in my heart for this morning. Matthew chapter 1. If you're, new, <clears throat> if you're new to the scriptures, that's great. We're glad you're here. There are four gospels, which is a way of saying first century biographies of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. Matthew obviously is the first. And to start things off for the day, let's read from his opening story, the gospel of Matthew, chapter one, skip down to verse, there's a genealogy in a bit, and then skip down to verse 18. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the Torah and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to his son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because <clears throat> he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Quote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, or God with us. This is what we think about at Christmas time. A few weeks ago, you have Christmas, right, in the UK? Yeah? This is what we think about and ponder and sing about and have poetry about, music about. And, and we think about this a lot every December, but really all year long, this idea that Jesus is God with us or Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, there are two ways of reading this moniker of Emmanuel for Jesus. The first way is the most obvious one and by far the most popular one, and that's to read it as God with us, if you imagine that word God in all caps, as if the point that Matthew's getting at right here in his gospel is that Jesus is God, the creator God, and he's with us. And obviously that is true. I mean, to be more precise, Jesus is the embodiment of the creator God, right? Because he was an actual real life human being, real his flesh and blood, historical character. He was not a facade or a ghost or a mirage. He was Jesus of Nazareth. 
But that's absolutely right. But there's actually another way of reading it, and it's that Jesus is God with us. As if you imagine the emphasis on that middle word, with. As if the point that Matthew is getting at is that God, the creator, is with us in Jesus of Nazareth. Meaning he's not far away or aloof, even if it feels that way at times. He's not uncaring or distant or deistic, but no, he's up close, personal, right with you and I in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I actually think that both of those ideas are true, at least theologically. I have no doubt that Matthew would nod his head and say, yes, Jesus is, for no, without a doubt, the embodiment of the creator God. But I actually think that what the writer is getting at here is more on the second one, more that Jesus is God with us. He's this living evidence, this sign, this proof that God's not far away, in particular when we're facing something rough. Now, there are two reasons I think this. One is linguistic. This moniker, this title, Emmanuel, is from the Hebrew, and Eman means with, and El is short for Elohim, meaning anybody know? God, yeah. So more literally, it can be translated the with us God. Jesus is the with us God. But then a second reason is actually historic. That line, the really well-known one, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. That line is a quote from the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. And if you go back and you read the prophet Isaiah, that's from chapter 7, and you read the quote in context, it's fascinating. Because in context, Isaiah's point is not about how there's a child coming who will be the embodiment of God and fully God, but fully human in the Nicene Creed in 300 AD and all this stuff. If you go back and read it in context, Israel is in a time of crisis and distress. King Ahaz is scared to death because the Arameans and the rebel tribes up in the north, you, you know, Americans of the day, are about <laughs> to sweep in and wipe Jerusalem off the face of the map. And Israel is scared to death, and so God starts to speak to the king, to Israel, via the prophet Isaiah. And basically, to sum up, go read Isaiah 7 on your own time, but basically, to sum up, God says, it's okay. I'm with you. It's going to be okay. And as a sign that Isaiah's prophecy, as a sign that I'm with you and that it's going to be okay, listen, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a child and you will call him Emmanuel. And he goes on to say, before the child is old enough to eat solid food, I'm going to rescue you from the Arameans up in the north. So in context, the prophet's point isn't so much that the child is you know, fully God and fully human, although he does get there a few chapters later. But in context, his point is, listen, I'm with you. And it's going to be all right. I'm not far away. I know you're scared. I know what you're up against. But I'm with you and right at your side. Now, all of that to say, the story of Jesus, in particular what we call the Christmas story, now two millennia later. Yes, it's about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and Emmanuel. But ultimately, at its root, it's not only about the godness of Jesus. It is. But it's also about the withness of God. Now, not only is God with a teenage, teenager named Mary in the middle of a scandal, right? You know, who's, your, who's the father of your child? The Holy Spirit, sure, right? Like people are going to believe that. Good one. But not only is, is God with Mary, but he's also with you and me. Turn over to Matthew 28. From the first chapter to the last chapter, to the right, about a quarter of an inch or eighth of an inch, 
And uh, let's read the closing paragraph. This is a well-known one. If you have been around the church for any length of time, no doubt you know it from memory. Matthew chapter 28, skip down to verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and here's the iconic line, go and make what? Yeah, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But don't stop there. A lot of people stop there. It's not the end. That's right. Well done. And surely... I am what? With you. How often? Always. For how long? Yeah, to the very end of the age. So, Matthew, the writer, starts his story of Jesus on the withness of God. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a child. You will call his name Emmanuel. But then he ends his story of Jesus on the withness of God. Quote, first person, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age, end quote, Jesus. Now, it's not only the writer Matthew, but it's actually the narrative arc of the scriptures as a whole from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Think of Genesis. Think of the opening story, the Garden of Eden. God, the creator, is with human Adam and Eve in the garden, wrapped up in relationship. We read that God was walking in the garden with Adam, with Eve, in the cool of the day. It's all about the witness of God. Then in the next part of the story, in the fall, we read about how human is separated from God. He is shut out of the Garden of Eden. Now God and human are no longer together, but are at arm's length. At best, heaven and earth are no longer the exact same place, but now there's a wall in between the two. And then we read about redemption starting with Abraham and then Israel and then all the way up to King or Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus comes to reunite human to God and God to human. And then at the end of the scriptures, in Revelation, we read this, one of my favorite lines in all of the New Testament, quote, look, the dwelling place of God is now among the people and he will dwell, what? With them. So the beginning, the middle, And the end of the story all focus on the creator God's desire to be with his creation, to be with his people, to be with you and me. Now, why is that? I'm sure there are lots of reasons, right? Here's one that I know for sure. God, by nature, is relational. I think of the opening line of the Gospel of John. The writer Matthew tells the Christmas story and narrative. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. But the writer John tells the Christmas story in theologically dense poetry. And he writes this. This is the opening line. Quote, in the beginning was the word. That's John's name for Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And just in case you missed it, he was with God in the beginning. Meaning before time and space, before anything and everything, the word was with God. Or put another way, the son was with the father. And all of creation, you, me, Sherwood Forest, everything in between, all of it 
was born out of the relational framework of who God is, out of this relationship that God had and still has with himself. And now because of Jesus, you and I are invited to step into that relational framework and into life with God himself. That closing line in Matthew, surely I am with you always, which is such a great way to end a story. That's not, just an invi- or that's not just a promise, although it is. That is a promise that God is with you always, not just when you feel God's presence, not when you're just at retreat to advance in Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood and all, which is rad, by the way. <laughs> Seriously awesome. I'm sure Russell Crowe's out there somewhere too. But, um, <laughs> but not just... God's not just with you here. God's with you in your mundane job and school that you don't like and hardship and difficulty when you feel God, when you don't feel God. Either way, God is with you always up, down, through thick and thin. That's a promise, but it's not just a promise. It's also an invitation. It's also Jesus' way of saying, listen, I'm with you always, 24-7. Are you with me? I'm a relational God by nature. Are you in relationship to me? Now, on that note, there are all sorts of ways that people relate to God, right? Here are four, if you're taking notes. This is from the writer Sky Jathani. You may or may not know about it. He has a brilliant book out called With. I'm not sure if it's for sale in the back. Really, really good. This is his framework. If you're taking notes, write this down. If not, feel guilty and play on your phone or whatever. These are four ways that people relate to God or four ways of doing life with God. And the first is uh, life under God. Life under God. This is essentially a bartering system with God. It's based on the formula, the religious formula, if then. If you do blank, then God will do blank. If you go to church, if you tithe, if you show up for retreat to advance once a year, if you don't have sex until you get married, whatever, then God will give you amazing sex for the rest of your life with a really hot wife or whatever it is. Maybe that's an American thing. I don't know. Um, if you give money, then God will give you a great career with a huge salary and a ton. If you, if you, then God. Now, these are people who, when tragedy strikes, usually blame God for stuff that he had little or nothing to do with and are bitter and angry with God. Because there's this underlying sense of entitlement, this underlying sense that, God, you owe me. I'm a good person. I go to church. I wait. I do this. I serve. I volunteer. I do justice. I go to Uganda once a year. Whatever it is for you, God, I do this. Therefore, you owe me. Now, obviously, this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the heart of God. But sadly, this is how lots and lots of people, in particular religious people, particular people who grew up around the church. This is how so many people relate to God. Now, that's first, life under God. Secondly, is life over God. These are people who, when it comes to relationship with God, do what they want when they want it. Now, one way to do this is secularism, which you Brits know all about. Well done on that. And this is the de facto religion, really all over the West, only in the UK, but more and more in America, particularly up in the Pacific Northwest, on the East Coast of America. This is the de facto religion of the day. But keep in mind that secularism, and you know this, you're obviously thinking people, but it's it's not the same thing as atheism. You can be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or Baha'i or whatever. You can go to church every single weekend. You can show up for retreat to advance and live a secular life. 
meaning live as if God has little or nothing to do with your everyday life, as if he's off to the side, on the periphery, but really what's at the center of your life is your career or your education or your body or romance or your family, your wife, or whatever it is. That's what's at the center of your life. So that's one way to do it. But another way to do it is this weird deviant form of Christianity that goes by the alias of, quote, Maybe this is an American thing, so forgive me if it doesn't translate. But if it's dumb, it's usually an American thing. But um, it goes by the alias of biblical principles for living. And it sounds a lot like this. Three steps to a better career. Five steps to thrive in 2014 or whatever. 14 steps to thrive in 2014 or whatever it is. Three steps to, you know, this, that, or the other. This way of relating to God is especially pervasive in educated, affluent, middle to upper middle class communities, really all over the West. And it's this way, ultimately it's a formula. It's a way to get God to do what you want when you want it. If I do these three things, if I do these four things, if I take these three steps, then God will. It's yet another formula. Now third, if you're taking notes, we have under, we have over. Third is life from God. This is where we are more interested in what we can get from God than we are in God himself. And honestly, this is, I think, our generation to a T, right? Um, A while back, and this was, maybe this is an American thing once again, but um, a sociologist from a university, University of North Carolina on the East Coast, did finish years of research of the emerging religious life of young people that uh, have grown up around the church. And basically what he found is that the vast majority of teenagers and 20-somethings and up now into 30s, how they relate to God, they think of God as, this was his own words, quote, a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. And then he said that they are primarily concerned, and they, by the way, is me, my generation, they are primarily concerned with one's own happiness. Now, I'm not down on happiness. Who is? I don't think Jesus is either. But when happiness becomes your end goal, right? When that becomes what you're after, so much so that you throw off the oppression of the Brits and devote a nation to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm just saying. Or whatever it is. That's you, not us. I'm sorry. But when that becomes your end goal, when that becomes what you're chasing after, then when that becomes it for you, something is wrong. Rather than Jesus and relationship to Jesus, his kingdom, his inbreaking rule and reign and partnership and what he is all about. And this is interesting because it sounds, this, this whole way of relating to God, and, and the sociologists called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, hey, you should be a good person, Therapeutic, it's all about your therapy, your happiness. Deism, is there a God? Sure. Is he out there? Yeah. Is he involved in your life? No, not unless if I need something. And this is how so many of us relate to God. But notice how much our culture it sounds like, right? Our consumeristic culture, it's basically consumerism in the form of discipleship to Jesus. And so God becomes a commodity. Church and something like this becomes religious goods and services, and we become spiritual consumers of God, of church, of the Bible, of prayer, of it, whatever it is. And the end goal is to get life from God. We are more concerned with the gift than we are with the one giving it. 
Sky Jathani writes this, quote, so much of contemporary religion is focused on God's gifts rather than on God. We use God as a means of building or repairing our families. We use him as a sex therapist. I didn't know you could do that, but I guess you can. He is our political advisor and our financial planner. From God's hand, we seek family, sex, power, and wealth. But do we actually want God himself? We shouldn't be surprised to find that when we fixate on what we can attain from God, we fail to experience the peace of his presence in our lives. That's life from God. And then one more, lastly, there's life for God. Under, over, from, and then for. This is the exact opposite of from God. It's the activist, the advocate for social justice. I'm guessing a ton of you the nonprofit social justice entrepreneur, the missionary, the men and women who fight and bleed and sweat and labor and burn out and cross the finish line half dead already, all for the mission of God. A mission obviously is a good thing. My entire church is shaped around what we call the mission of God. But if and when the mission of God eclipses the God of mission, Not only is that a surefire recipe for burnout, not only in your body, but in your soul, but it's not the way of Jesus. And here's how you know if this is you. The odds are that you're type A, you're driven, you're hardworking, you have a hard time relaxing, you don't have all that much fun and you don't care. People don't don't like you all that much, you don't care about that either. Right? You live with this horrific tension. On one hand, you feel like you're doing too much. And then on the other hand, you feel like you're not doing enough. You ever feel like that or is that just me? You know, I'm doing too much. I'm stressed out and I'm busy and I don't sleep enough and I have no margin and I'm stressed and this, that and the other and too many things spinning. But at the same time, I feel like I'm not doing enough and I need to do this better. 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 So I'm doing too much, but I'm not doing enough and I'm not doing enough, but I'm doing too much. Is that just me? I think it's like just me and Pete maybe. Um, But, and that's how you feel. You look at other people and you think they're not doing enough, they're let down, they're consumeristic, they're lazy, they're selfish, and the odds are you're right. But at the same time, you feel like you are a disappointment to God. How do I know all this? Because this is me, right? That was me. This is how I often relate to God. There's a little bit of me in all four of these ways, but for the most part, the way I'm wired, it's life for God. Let's work hard, let's sweat, let's labor, let's bleed. God, we're going to do this for you. God, we're going to do this for you. God, we're going to lead a church. God, we're going to do this. God, we're... And next thing you know, my soul is empty and burnout and I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and there's no life and there's no joy. It's life for God. So under, over, from, for. These are four ways that we relate to God. Is there a better way? Obviously, the answer to that is yes. What is it? Well, it's life with God. These four ways of relating to God aren't all bad. There's a little bit of truth in each one. Of course, we get life from God. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the author of it. Of course, we live for God and shaped around the mission of God. Biblical principles obviously aren't a bad thing. There's a little bit of truth in each one. But all four see relationship with God as a means to an end as a way to get health and success or happiness, or as a way to get this and life and joy, or as a way to get ahead in life, or as a way to do something that matters. All see relationship with God as a means to an end. The problem with that is that God is the end, right? God himself, not serving God, not salvation, not God himself is the end. You know, I have three kids, um, 
Uh, Jude is eight, and then I have another boy, Moses, who's five, and then a beautiful little girl who's four years old. Sunday, she uh, is from Uganda, black, and she's a gorgeous little girl, right? So we have these three kids. They're all great. And um, a few weeks ago, it was, I think it was the week before Christmas, it was a Saturday, my day off, and I was going out Christmas shopping. And I was going out Christmas shopping for my wife and for the two little kids. And so I said to my son, Jude, who's eight, hey, why don't you come along? But my son, Moses, who's five, as we're walking out the door, was devastated. Right? He just starts to just tear up and well and cry. And it wasn't like angry, mad, spoiled brat cry. That happens. But it wasn't that. It was like, you're abandoning me. I'm the middle child getting passed over. And you love your cute little daughter and your firstborn. But me, I'm, you know, it was like abandonment. Like, this is going to cause psychological trauma or whatever, you know. Um, Pete's scared of rats. He's going to be scared of Christmas shopping or something. You know, this is going to do something. And I said, Moses, listen, I'm going out Christmas shopping. And if, if I'm going shopping for you, and if you come along, then I can't buy you anything. Which honestly is not really true because it's so easy to fool a five-year-old. It's not <laughs> even funny. Truth is a little bit more that it's really stressful to go shopping with more than one kid at a time. But um, don't tell him that. You know, I, I can't take you. I'm going Christmas shopping for you. And he said, Dad, but I want to come. And then he's a, he's a thinker, right? He's in his head. He's introverted. And he's very logical. And so I said, okay, Moses, think with me. And he said, okay. And if I take you Christmas shopping, then I can't buy you a Christmas present. Would you rather go run errands with me and drive around in a car and walk into a random place with old people and buy stuff? Or would you rather get a Christmas present? Now, he's a logical kid, right? I'm expecting him to say the obvious answer. Okay, I'm staying, right? But instead he said, Dad, I would rather be with you than get anything for Christmas. Oh, come on. Seriously? I thought, okay, I'm going to buy you the entire store when I'm there. Now, I doubt that was actually even true. But in that moment, at least, for that slice of human history, he would rather just be with his dad and drive around town and listen to Bing Crosby on the radio and talk and chat and walk through a store and just be with me, then get anything from me. And how often am I nothing like that in my relationship to the Father? The heart and soul of relationships, really relationships in general, but in particular relationship to God, the heart and soul of it is withness. Now, how do you relate to God? If you were to diagnose your relationship to the creator of the universe, if you were to plot your life along that spectrum of under, over, from, for, with, where do you fall? And if you're not sure, here's how you diagnose it. Look at what you value and then look at what you fear. If it's life under God, you value (coughs) safety and security, a nice, tidy life free from pain, and you fear pain, suffering, hardship, injustice. You're scared to death of that. If it's life over God, you value command and control your five-year plan. I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to take over the world, right? And it's your thing, your agenda. You have it all worked out, and it's all in your iCal through 2035, and you have it. That's, that's it. That's what you want. That's what you're after. You know exactly what it is, and you fear surrender to God, abandonment, we sing a song about, you know, surrender, and it's scary to you, and you start to mumble and stop singing for a minute, or you lie to God, 
which is what a lot of us do in worship, right? You're the greatest one in my life. You're one for me. Like, really? And what you fear, you fear surrender, you fear abandonment, you fear faith, you fear living by faith, you fear risk, you fear the unknown, you fear uncertainty about your future. If it's life from God, you value money and stuff and success and happiness, and you know what you worry about? Money and stuff and success and happiness. If it's life for God, you value accomplishment and achievement. You want to live a life that matters. You want to shake the nations. And you're scared to death of mediocrity, of living a boring, ordinary, normal life where you wake up every day and you go to your weird job and you come back home. Scared to death because you want to be spectacular. If it's life with God, what do you value? Or, who should, I, or should I say, who do you value? Yeah, God, Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit. And what do you fear? God. <laughs> or put another way, nothing. Because nothing can take from you the witness of God. And I hesitate to speak to this because I have a life that for the most part is free from suffering. But nothing can take God's witness from you. Life is a cruel monster at times, Right? And it can take from you health. It can take from you success. It can take from you reputation. It can take away the people you love. It can take away how, what you're known for. It can take away a dream. It can take away a prayer. It can take away an ambition. It can take away whatever it is that you cherish, that you're after, that's front and center in your heart. But nothing, not death, not pain, not suffering, not injustice, not a mistake you made 10 years ago, not sin done by you or to you, nothing can take from you the witness of God. Surely I am with you. How often? Always. So if that is what's front, <coughs> excuse me, front and center in your life, then you have nothing to fear. Now, what does this come down to in day-to-day -day life? When you go back to your life in whatever city and whatever part of the UK, what does this look like when you wake up in the morning and you're back to life as usual? Two things. First, this comes down to, to the scriptures. What's right in your lap right now or on your iPhone or whatever. Um, this is what it comes down to. Not treating the scriptures like like a rule book, a list of do's and don'ts. That's life under God. What should I do? What should I not do? Am I in compliance with God? Is he mad at me? Okay, yes, I'll be good for three days and then he won't be mad at me anymore. Three days, that's the magic number. If you're good for three days, then God's cool with you, right? Not treating them like a depository of biblical principles to get ahead in life, right? That's life over God. Okay, what are four things that I should do to make this more successful? What are three things I should do to get married? What are four things I should do to stay married? What are whatever, not treating them li like a pep talk. That's life from God, right? We have these really lousy, dumb things in America. I know there's more of like weird Christian subculture. Not really where I live, but in America as a whole. I don't know if you have these here. Do you have them, Pete? Uh, like little calendars that are like three by five card size that have uh, the date and then a scripture verse on them. Do you have that? And like every woman over 50 has them. Or maybe, young people, maybe young people have them here. I don't know. In America, it's like my mother-in-law has one. And they're either in the bathroom or in the kitchen. You have that here? And there's usually like really bad art and, and a date and a scripture. Sounds like, is enough, I'm guessing? Yes, a little bit. So my mother-in-law has one in her kitchen. And they're really interesting to me. And I'm a bit cynical. But um, 
which you're Brit, so you're fine with that, I think. <laughs> um, but they're really interesting because there's 365 scriptures, right? One for every day of the year. And they're all positive, every single one, right? All of them. So you turn the page, January 8th, 10th, day, or whatever it is, the 18th. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory. Now, is that true or not true? It's true and it's beautiful, but you never turn the page and the love of money is the root of all evil, Jesus. <laughs> you know? It's, it's never, you never read anything like that. It's always, you know, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you turn it and you say, yes, I'm going to take over the world today. It's never, you know, in this world you will face persecution, Jesus. <laughs> like, it's just not, you know, you just turn the page. When this world, your morning coffee and your mother-in-law's in her bathrobe, we will face persecution. Like, we're, it's, it's a pep talk. But so often, that is symptomatic of how we come at the Bible. We come at it for a little tidbit here, a little pep talk there, a little self-help on the side, a little pick-me-up, a little cup of coffee, a little sweet to get me through the day. That's why half the time we don't even read the Bible anymore. We read a devotional about the Bible, or we have an Instagram feed or a Twitter feed about the Bible, or an email from some celebrity Christian about the Bible. We don't actually even open it up and read it for ourselves anymore. Because we don't actually want God himself. And then when we do actually open up the Bible and read, we feel like a stranger. We feel like, a, like an alien. We don't know it. We don't know our way around it. We don't get it. Because all we have is a tidbit here and a pep talk here. Because we're not actually after God himself. All we want is life from God. And then, of course, there's life for God, which is treating the scriptures as a manifesto for how to take over the world. <laughs> Just how I read them quite often. There's a better way to read the scriptures. And what is it? It's treating it as a context or treating them as a context for you to meet with God. As a place for you to engage, not just an ancient author and Greek or Hebrew and studying, absolutely. But ultimately, the back of that, for you to engage the God who made you. A place for you to take a deep breath and calm and quiet and focus your mind and tune in your soul to the speaking and the spoken voice of God in the text and in the Holy Spirit, a place for you to commune with God, a place, a context, a moment in your day for you to be with God. That's why, if, if anything, make sure that you carve out time, not only here, not only this afternoon when you have six hours free to but every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, make sure that you carve out time to read. And not just to read a verse or a paragraph or a chapter really fast and go about your day, but time to actually engage and to be with God. This comes down to the scriptures. And then secondly, this comes down to prayer. You know, most of us think of prayer as communication with God, and obviously it is, we pray to God. But it's also communion with God. Um, in the late 80s, Dan Rather from CBS News did an interview with Mother Teresa when she was still living. And at one point in the interview, he said to her, when you pray, what do you say to God? And it was interesting. Mother Teresa said, I don't say anything. I listen. And so Dan, Dan Rather said, okay, then when God speaks to you, what does he say? And then she said, he doesn't say anything. He listens. 
And he was confused. And then she said, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Now, obviously, you know, we, we could take that out of context and say, yeah, but obviously. But I think what she's getting at is what Paul called prayer without ceasing. You know that line in 1 Thessalonians? Pray without ceasing. You know that? You, nobody's nodding at me. Yes? No? You have that and you have 1 Thessalonians in your Bible here, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So everything's spelled weird, but um, all right. Um, what does Paul mean by that? Pray without ceasing. Does he mean quit your job and go off to a monastery in the forest and don't eat or sleep or drink straight and just pray without ceasing for three weeks and then die? Or, does, does, I don't think so, I hope not. I mean, if so, we're in the forest. Here we go, right? I, I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means by pray without ceasing is learn to always be two places at once. At retreat to advance and in God's presence. At church and in God's presence. On your morning commute on the train and in God's presence. In class and in God's presence. At your job and in God's presence. On a run and in God's presence. At the pub and in God's presence. On a walk in the forest and in God's presence. Learn to always be two places at once and learn to cultivate an awareness of the withness of God and learn to just be with God. Like for me, this is really foreign. This is really alien. It doesn't come naturally to me, but I'm trying bit by bit to learn. You know, last month, I had this kind of brutal fall, and last month, um, God was really stirring in my heart that I need to pray more, and I felt like God was calling me to do an all-night in prayer. Now, I'm, I'm a, I need eight hours of sleep a night. Um, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people that can go on, you know, two hours or whatever. And so I was kind of fighting with God in the back of my mind for a few weeks, and finally I said, okay, whatever, I cave in. Tuesday night, we'll do it, right? So Tuesday night, wife and the kids go to bed, and I start a fire, and I just stay up. And I'm there, and I feel like God's been calling me to it. And so, okay, God, what do you want? And I read the scriptures, and I start to pray and think, and my journal is there, and it's open, and the pad is open. Like, okay, God, what do you want to say? What do you want to do to me tonight? And I felt like God said, I just want to be with you. All night? We can't do this? We can't do this during the day? I mean... I mean, at least there's a fire. That's nice. But really now, like we can't do this on Saturday or my day off or I just, I just want to be with you. And honestly, that night was the most freeing experience for me. I mean, it was great. And I feel like God said some stuff to me, but there was no watershed moment, no breaking, no revelation, no audible voice of God. But I was with God. And I feel like God is trying to teach me or reteach me, and it doesn't come naturally, but how just to be with God. So to sum up, to be honest, this comes down to the scriptures. This comes down to prayer. If you're thinking, basically, you're saying, read my Bible and pray, they flew you all the way from America (laughs) to tell us to read our Bible and to pray. I think we already know that. Well, take it up with Pete. Sorry. Yes, I am saying that. But I'm also saying that do, do that with God, not from God or for God, or, but with God. You know, I think of Brother Lawrence. You know about him here? Yeah, I mean, he's, you may or may not know about him. He's somewhat well known in the world today, but he was, he was obscure in his time. I think it was 16th century in a, in a monastery in Paris, France. Is that okay? I know there's like bad blood between the Brits and the French. Is that okay? In Paris, France. 
And uh, he wasn't a monk because he was never educated. He was a former soldier. He was a dishwasher in a monastery for the bulk of his life. And he devoted his life to one thing. He called it the practice of the presence of God. By the end of his life, people would come from all over Europe just to watch this dude in the kitchen working and radiating God's presence. He'd write letters from people from all over. And after his death, a Catholic priest put all the letters into a short little book. You can buy it online or whatever called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's one of my favorite lines in it. I love it. The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. I possess God. Where? In the kitchen. When it's noisy. And hey, I need another one of those. And I need some more, whatever, fish and chips, whatever. That was quintessential, sorry. Um, I'm contextualizing to England, okay? I possess God just as I'm if in front, I'm in front of the body and the blood, the blessed sacrament. I possess God. That's how I want to live. And my guess is that I'm not alone, right? Learn to cultivate the active awareness of the withness of God in your life. If you hate your job, God is with you. And get a new one, but that's a whole other sermon, all right? If you're in a hard time in life right now, God is with you. If you're lonely and you wish you were married or you are and you wish you weren't, but God is with you. Learn to live with God. As you think about the coming years, you go back to your life Sunday afternoon or evening, what would it look like to live all of 2014, all of life with God? To carve out time to get away from technology and busyness and noise and stress in the city, to be with God, to open the scriptures, to take a deep breath, to read, to pray, to think, to ponder, to listen, and to be with God right in the middle of the stress and anxiety and morning commute and your train and your job and this, that right in the middle of the kitchen to learn to be two places at once, 24-7, to live with God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. It's so great to be here um, with friends, with family. And Jesus, we want to learn to live in your presence. Not to visit your presence in Sherwood Forest once a year, but to take up residence in your presence and with you. Teach us, God, discipline our heart and our mind, our thinking and our feeling to live with you. Because for us, God, it's not just a discipline, it is, but it is a hunger and a thirst to be in relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, come, teach and reteach. Over this weekend, would you make us aware of your presence? Would you draw us in and would you teach us how to live there. One thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold the beauty of the Lord, to gaze on him. That's it, Jesus. And that's what we're here for. Amen.